Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time I covered the shift of the war to the north, the Swedes and the French tightening their hold on their held territory. It wasn't necessarily smooth for either side, but overall the HRE came out of the shift weaker from it, while the Swedes and the French were in a better position, especially with the new position to launch offensives from. And while their new alliances with their German allies were shaky at the moment, particularly with moments like Melander defecting, it didn't do too much damage to the Swedes and the French. So, 1641 began with more of a preparatory phase in a sort of major war. But with that covered, let's get started. One thing that was becoming more and more common during this war was the breakdown of normal societal advancement. Men like Melander were commoners before he rose to the rank and earned his fortune, which was easier when the continent was in chaos. Though he had received letters of nobility since 1608, so he wasn't a pure commoner, but he was definitely of a lower societal rank than many of the other people in society would allow beforehand. The key fact is men who would normally be locked out of societal advancement, or if not locked out, then limited by their position, were now in a better position to advance. Though realistically, this was for people who had some resources like merchants or people with land and were only minor nobility. So a pure poor farmer would have a lot harder time than a merchant, but the fact that merchants were getting the chance? Another key fact is, despite the claim that the last eight years of war were claimed to be the bloodiest and most chaotic, this came from the courts of Austria, which looked down upon the rise of men like Melander and other social lessers. They also didn't like that the soldiers were becoming more important politically and socially, as lower officers were often left to get supplies and money for their own units, being able to operate on their own, which gave them more degree of power than any military before that. Though part of that is that this was created as a myth post-war to justify high taxes and control over the population, and to keep the funding of the standing army post-30 years war in peace. It's easier to justify a standing army when you're at war than when you're at peace. And the soldiers of the 16th 1650s and 1660s were at the very least presented as more orderly and disciplined, which they probably were, although as I've shown in this war, making sure people were paid and in good order was harder than it looked. This all leads to a lot of issues that had been created over the decade or so of war were really catching up to everyone, especially on multiple fronts. As stated before, societal limits and stability were heavily damaged, leading to more issues with administration, along with general economic downturn as noted previously in the podcast. And even offering extra pay wasn't working, and desertion was becoming a major problem for people. Numbers across the board were going down, leading to smaller, more mobile armies, which was more adaptable to this current setting than the ideal. Cavalry was becoming more prominent in armies, making up half of the armies, unlike before, where they were a third or so. Sieges also became less common, cities often surrendering rather than face long sieges, though it doesn't mean there weren't any anymore, just they were less often taking, you know, months of time just to clear out a city. Field battles became more common, despite the lack of numbers, in contrast to the war between the Spanish and the Dutch, which was focused on long sieges across the Netherlands territories. Enemy soldiers were also less often pressed into service, as they were seen as unreliable and often deserted as soon as they could, because realistically, they'd rather go back to their own forces than hang around with the enemy. Veteran soldiers, especially pikemen, were becoming harder to find at this point, and desertion was becoming a bigger problem this decade. The 1640s, that is. Cavalry becoming more prominent also had a side effect on how armies moved. They were more mobile and could scavenge further and further afield, so there was much more room to get supplies from. They could also deal with attacks on less defended lands easier as they could move faster and react quicker. But due to high casualties of mounts during battle and low foraging, cavalry would often fight on foot by the end of the year, leading to slow starts at the start of the year, the start of the next year that is, because, you know, winter setting in, a lot less plants, so cavalry couldn't be as reliably fed. And people trained in horseback were often valuable recruits, being nobility or commoners, and were offered higher bonuses 
bonuses to entice people to join. Warfare was having to, well, adapt to this new war, which was very specific for the period, as the shift to cavalry was more out of necessity than desire, as skilled pikemen were becoming harder to come by, and musketeers were becoming more common as well, which shifted the balance of formations as I described in the Swedish army episodes. Pikemen had become around 20% of most armies by the 1640s, compared to the past where it was around 35-50%. to 50%. This would be a temporary setup, as cavalry would once again reduce to lower numbers by the 1700s, though the increase in musketeers would stay, especially as bayonets got better, as a bayonet could replace a pike because early bayonets plugged the barrel, whereas more modern bayonets for the time period could act like a ring around the barrel, which means you could have a spear and a gun at the same time, but that wasn't at that point yet. Musketeers also were better on the defensive in this war at the very least, so more musketeers meant more defensive infantry forces, which is in contrast to more pike-heavy formations, which tend to be offensive. Militaries were definitely adapting to what they needed to do, and it seems pretty smart that they were all kind of figuring out how to numbers and what the change tactically. And I will note that despite me talking about some of the commanders of the Swedes and French, neither side really lacked significant high-skilled senior officers. The Imperials didn't lack for generals either, as many were just as skilled as Tilly or Wallenstein, but they just didn't get as much focus as there are more generals now at this time than there were before. But the war shifts actually created a more focused war, as each side was more focused on their political goals, trying to get the best position to negotiate from, rather than try to win an overwhelming victory. One destruction wasn't the goal, and both sides knew that total victory wasn't realistic or possible, so they tried to outplay their opponent to get the best terms for a peace. Like I've been talking about with Ferdinand and him trying to get a better military position so he could press his claims more. But the Imperials, as the Swedes and the French gathered their allies, were doing their own political housekeeping as well. Ferdinand had noticed he had not gained a significant military victory against their enemies, so he called the Reichstag, which was a much wider gathering of men that hadn't been done for 27 years. This was intended to work on the Prague Agreement, and went against his father's policy, where he just wanted the least amount of people involved possible, and to assert his own authority, which meant basically keeping it to the electors. The Reichstag gave a more public voice to speak for lesser nobility, although the Emperor still kept his opinions close to the chest so no one could pick out what he was going to do until the Emperor chose to. Not that people aren't aware of it, it just it was trying to figure out exactly what its policy idea was. The various local assemblies were much more willing to talk peace now, and Bavaria had, and Bavaria had even agreed to a papal peace talk policy created in 1636. The emperor knew that the electors would try to take control of this Reichstag, and they wanted to do their own congress, which they set up in July, but he called the Reichstag inviting a lot of people, which effectively would reduce the power of the electors due to all of them getting it at once, which meant they couldn't try to put their own opinion before any other political change happened. Happened. This effectively closed the electorate gathering, and the Regensburg Reichstag was started was started in September 1641, ending in October. Ferdinand's decision was probably a smart move, as he gave more voice to the lesser nobility, and he kept the power from being held by the seven electors. You could call it more democratic, but the HRE was still run by nobles, so this was just expanding it to less powerful landowners, though more fair than the other way at the very least. The policies that were discussed was about extending taxes named in 1638, which was set to expire, as well as rally the princes and electors to defeat Sweden and France. To get more support, Ferdinand agreed to concessions, which was very unlike his father. These included expanding the amnesty agreement, particularly giving Württemberg back some of their monasteries, and a willingness to extend a pardon to Hessen Castle and the Palatinate, with the understanding that they will join the Imperial War. He also agreed to delay attack on Hohentwil, to not rile up any of the Protestant Swabians there. There's also the suggestion to create a new 8th elector to get Palatine to be okay with the tasks of Bavaria by giving them their own new elector seat. And lastly, Ferdinand agreed to set the normative year for politics, 
1627, which would allow Protestants to keep their bishoprics, which is one of the terms that upset the Catholic Church delegation, although most of the Catholic princes were willing to accept, even those who would lose territory, like Mainz or Cologne. I'll share my opinion a little later on this, but overall, I think this was a smart move, as he tried to play peacekeeper and nice and get people to compromise to try to end the war and create a unified diplomatic front. These terms were relatively effective, and these would actually be used as a basis for some of the terms for the Peace of Westphalia, which would happen in around seven more years. And Peter also makes a good point in the book when he says that if these terms were offered years ago, there would have been much more unity among the HRE. But unfortunately, the last Ferdinand was uh, more devout and harsh about religion and such, so that didn't turn out so well. But unfortunately for the HRE and the Austrians, the Gulas and Hessians had already joined up with Sweden, and they would not be easily swayed back to the Imperials. The Emperor did renew a mandate that required all German subjects to renounce Sweden and France, or at least not join their service, which would definitely not be universal as as remember, German allies up north and other parts of the country that were smaller rebellions or folk heroes that were resisting, so hard to maintain that across a whole big country. His new policies were put in place by a recess, even though many of the lesser princes voted against the recess personally. The main practical purpose was to retroactively justify the heavy taxes from the previous year and into the coming years. This is the whole 240 Roman months sort of thing. The territories did try to follow the rules, but many often didn't pay the full amount, citing the cost of billeting and the plundering they'd taken. And along with the chaos of the war, trying to enforce this would be hard. But the big picture here is the Reichstag, for one, created greater unity among the Imperials and showed the character of Ferdinand. Unlike his father, he was willing to give a greater voice to the other rulers of the HRE and compromise on things, giving up some of his voice and political power to ensure stability. Granted, I think it's partially due to the tricky state of the war and, and the realistic problems with that, but as shown before, Ferdinand was certainly more willing to negotiate than his father ever was. Even though I I did say he was more willing to negotiate and compromise than you would expect, but he still was not as open to negotiation as the new Fernand was. And that will be it for this week. And the next time we go back to the Swedish forces and their new offensive, I want to thank you all for listening. Social media links will be on the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. A reminder that of Patreon, and thanks for those who support me. Review and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>